I don't know about you, but it, I think it's kind of warm in here. <laughs> oh, well. All right. We'll, we'll just hang in there for about another 20, 25 minutes. 20 minutes, we'll be done. So, What do you think it would take to um, really impress Jesus Christ? And to really just, just astonish him, to have him step back in amazement. What do you think it would take to impress Jesus? Well, there are only two places in all of the Gospels where we read that Jesus was amazed or, or astonished by something. And in both cases, it has to do with the topic of faith. In Mark 6, for example, we read about Jesus when he goes to his hometown. And we're told that he is astonished by the lack of faith by his own people. But here in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is the second time when Jesus is astonished. And Jesus is amazed at the presence of what he calls great faith. Now, it always is helpful in a story to kind of do a little bit of character, kind of fill in a little bit about the characters. And so, of course, there's Jesus, there is the centurion, uh, there's the sick, dying servant. Uh, there are the messengers that go back and forth, the liaisons between Jesus and, um, and the centurion. Of course, there's the Jewish leaders, and no doubt the disciples are kind of hanging around the edges, picking all of this up. But we're going to be focusing on centurion, the centurion and certainly, of course, Jesus. So what do you know about the centurion? Well, of course, he's a military officer. We can tell that by his, his name, centurion, by his rank. He's a centurion. He's, he's a Greco-Roman person. He's not Jewish. Um, he's a part of an occupying force uh, sent from the Roman Empire to occupy the Holy Lands. Um, he's probably be in today's military, maybe a second or first lieutenant, maybe a captain. He's in charge of 100 people. That's why he's called centurion. He would have understood the concept of, of um, authority. He would have lived his life with the principle of authority, really guiding him. He had 100 men underneath him. He would have expected them to do what he told them to do, when he told them to do it, and how he told them to do it. He also would have realized and accepted the fact that he was under authority as well. They would have been, there would have been men in charge of a thousand soldiers. There would have been, of course, generals. And, of course, ultimately, he would have been under the authority of Caesar in Rome. So he was a man who was steeped in authority. He understood what it was to have authority. Now, when you hear that description of him, you might think, well, he, here's a, a career military guy. He's a hardened battle warrior. Um, probably kind of a, a no, no business, all business, uh, let's not get caught up in feelings kind of guy. And yet, as we look at the rest of the story, we can see that there's another side to this man. He's well regarded by the Jewish leaders. In fact, we're told that he helped them build their synagogue. Think about that. A, a Roman soldier helping the people in, a, in the land he's occupying. He helps them build the local synagogue. He's well respected. He's liked. And we're told he has a servant that he's highly, he highly regards and he's concerned about him because he's sick and on his way to dying. So the centurion, he's heard of Jesus. We have no evidence that he has ever met Jesus, ever seen Jesus, ever heard Jesus. All he's done is heard about Jesus. But he hears that Jesus is in the area. And so he asks some of his friends in the Jewish community, some of the leaders from the synagogue, he asks them to go and approach Jesus on his behalf. And so they send these men, and we know the outcome at the end of the, the story. Jesus says, you've got great faith. The men go back to his house, and the servant is healed. So, so what's so great about this centurion's faith? Why is Jesus amazed by this man's faith? I mean, it would take a lot, wouldn't it, 
to impress and to amaze the Son of God? Well, I want to suggest to you there's a couple of things at work here, but the first thing we're going to be looking at that I think that Jesus commends is the centurion's posture, his, his, his humility before Jesus Christ. Now, we don't want to confuse humility and faith. They're, they're separate things, but there is a humility present in this story, in the centurion man, that if it wasn't there, that it always has to be there, a certain sort of humility that must be there to precede faith, that leads to faith, to genuine life-changing faith. And this centurion definitely has it. So let's take a look at this story. He sends, sends these Jewish leaders to, to Jesus. And it's interesting what they say. Their approach is very interesting. They say to Jesus, this man deserves to have you do this. He's worthy. He's done a lot for us. He's helped us build a synagogue. He's a good person. He's been good to us, God, your, God's people. He deserves to have you do this. He is worthy. And when I read that, it strikes me that that can be the approach of an awful lot of people today. Maybe sometimes in our own approach to God, we, we, think in terms, we can think in terms of what God owes us, of what we deserve in life. For a centurion who grew up in Greco-Roman culture, he would have understood the definite honor system. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You have my back in battle, I'll have yours. You do, you do good for me, I'll give good to you in, in return. And these elders of the Jews are kind of taking that same approach here with Jesus. They say, he's been good to us, so you need to be good to him. Do good, get good. Now, don't get me wrong in Scripture. There are, there's lots of, lots of examples where you know, people are blessed because they honor God, because they obey his commands. We are called to walk in obedience. Genuine faith will always and should result in, in, in obedience. But we must be careful to not cross the line and think that we have to start being really good in order for God to respond to us, as if we can manipulate him, as if we are in some way worthy. So anyhow, after this centurion sends these messengers to Jesus, he hears that Jesus is not far from his house, and his response is quite a contrast to the Jewish leaders. He doesn't even feel worthy for Jesus to come to his house. He sends another messenger and says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So on the one hand, the Jewish friends come to Jesus and say, this man is worthy. He deserves this. On the other hand, the centurion sends messengers to Jesus and says, I am not worthy. That's why I didn't come to you in the first place. Don't even bother coming to my house. Just say the word and it'll be done. He's built a synagogue. He's a man of accomplishment. He's done a lot for the community, but instead of relying upon what he has done in his life, he recognizes at some level that he is not worthy to be in Jesus' presence. Now remember, as a centurion, he would have started as a foot soldier. He would have been trained and highly skilled in, in fighting and, and killing, right? And he must have been pretty good at it because now he's a centurion. So he's, he's killed people. He's seen horrible things done. He's been a part of doing horrible things. Um, he's a part of an occupying force in Israel. And, and no doubt there have been times when he's given orders, where his soldiers have followed orders and people have been oppressed 
humiliated, tortured, maybe even killed as a result of his orders. In other words, he's a man with dirty hands, bloody hands. He, and he knows that he knows that he is not worthy to be in the presence of a prophet of God. The man is humble. It, when we think about, isn't that our situation? We may not have killed somebody, been a part of an occupying force, but haven't all of us fallen short of God's standards? Haven't all of us in word or thought or deed or lack of doing something? Haven't we all fallen short of, of a perfect and holy God? Shouldn't we all, like the centurions, say, I'm not, I'm not worthy? Remember that when we go through the scriptures and we study faith, that genuine faith is always preceded by this perspective, by humility, by an awareness of our lack of worthiness. Not worth, God views us as special because we're created in his image, but worthiness. That must be in place for us to come to a place of, of genuine faith with God. Secondly, I think Jesus is astonished and amazed because of this man's understanding of authority. We've alluded to that, and, and because it's coming from a, a Gentile man. At the very end of Luke 7, 1 through 10, he says to the crowd, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. And we know that previously Jesus went to his hometown and he's astonished at the lack of faith in the people there. And the other gospel writers fill in, in the gaps. And John tells us that those who should have known Jesus Christ and who he was were the ones who did not accept him. But here we find a Jewish man, a, a centurion, a fighting man, He's not brought up in the Hebrew scriptures. His worldview was no doubt shaped by battle and maybe by Homer and Plato, if he was educated. That's where he would have received his worldview. So here's a guy from that culture, and he has this great faith in Jesus Christ. While on one hand, the religious leaders are skeptical, doubtful, and unhappy because Jesus is not following their traditions, not meeting their expectations, here is a Gentile who is accepting of Jesus, who legitimately trusts Jesus. And let's take a look at his understanding of authority. In verse 8, he says, he sends messengers who speak for him, who say, For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. Does that one come, and he comes. I say, my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus hears this, and he's, a, he's astonished. At the, at the conviction behind this man's statements, behind this man's belief in Jesus' authority. The servant, the centurion believes Jesus is a prophet sent from God. He trusts that Jesus can heal his servant. Many of Jesus' own people don't have that kind of faith what this Gentile man does. You see, genuine faith must be founded in conviction about who Jesus Christ is and what he can do for us, has done for us, and will do for us. Which begs the question for each of us today is, what do we believe about Jesus Christ? Who is he to us? Do we see him as the son of God who died for our sins, who rose from the dead? Do we believe he can heal us, that he can restore broken relationships? Do we believe that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives and for our world? Do we believe that he can forgive us of our worst sins? Do we believe that he has good in mind for us as his people? Well, this centurion seems to have no hesitation, no doubt whatsoever, 
regarding Jesus' authority and who he is. And Jesus hears this and says, that's great faith. Now, it's interesting that the centurion, as we mentioned earlier, has never even seen Jesus. He's not met him. He doesn't know what he looks like. He's not heard him speak. He's heard stories. He's heard reports. But he's never once seen Jesus in the flesh, never touched him, never been touched by him. And yet he's confident in Jesus' authority and power. And that should be an encouragement for us because none of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. But we can have confidence too. We understand what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, that faith is believing what we hope for, that is being certain of what we do not yet see. And Jesus sees this sort of faith in this man and he says, I've not seen such a great faith in all of Israel. Now, you might ask me, well, that's great, Doug, but what about the times when we approach Jesus and we don't get the answer that we want? There have been several times when I, and no doubt many of you, have prayed for people who have been sick and they've not gotten better. They've, they've died. What are we to make of that? Why do people still die when we pray for them? Are we to read the stories and say, well, this is great, but it sounds really too good for today. Or do we read them and say, whatever Jesus was doing then, it doesn't seem like he's doing that today. How do we, how do we come to grips with that? How do we understand this? Well, we don't have time to go through the rest of Scripture and do an exhaustive study of faith. But I thought it would be interesting to hear from a couple of people from the past, John Wesley and John Calvin, and their their comments, their definition of of faith. John Wesley begins his definition of faith by saying, faith is the conviction of God and the things of God. Hold on to that piece. 200 years earlier, John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. If you kind of take those and put them together, great faith is a firm and certain conviction of God's goodness toward us, whatever the short-term outcome may be. Because sometimes we do pray for people and they they don't make it. Does that mean that we didn't have enough faith or we don't have great faith? Does it mean that Jesus really isn't as powerful today as he was when he walked this earth? No. As we look through the rest of Luke's Gospel and through other Gospels, we see that when Jesus came, he began to set in motion something that is not yet completed. He began to set in motion the promised restoration. And we have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of a, of a world and a universe that will be as God intended. And so in this world, does God heal all of our diseases? Well, my answer is this. Already, but not yet. In Jesus, the process has begun, but there's much, much more to come, isn't there? And that's where we need to have faith. I'm convinced that the most mature expression of faith is not simply to say, God, I know you're going to heal my loved one right now, so they will not die. A mature faith is saying, God, 
in this trial that I'm going through, I'm confident that whatever the short-term outcome may be, you are a God that I can trust, that you're compassionate, that you're powerful, and I'm trusting in your goodness to me, even if it takes the rest of human history for that to play out. Lord, I am confident of your goodness. That's, that's great faith. Pastor Steve Matthewson writes about a time when he learned much about faith from his father. He writes, My dad died shortly before his 63rd birthday. He was pastoring a small church in central Illinois, and several months after his death, I concluded that God sent him to that church not only to teach his people how to live, but also how to die. He writes, I'm so grateful for his example. He died well. He suffered from cancer. And the last few weeks of his life were so painful, but I'll never forget the last conversation that I had with him. He had just gotten the news from his doctor that there was nothing else to be done, and I'll never forget him saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit stunned. He talked about the sting of death. But then he said, never forget that in whatever happens to me, God is good. Faith, great faith is a firm and certain conviction of God's goodness, whatever the, the short-term outcome, knowing that God is good to us in Christ Jesus and that he is at work to bring healing and salvation from death and pain and injustice and suffering one day when Christ returns. That's great faith. And so in the struggles and challenges that we may face in the today or the weeks or the months or years to come, will we trust him with that kind of faith? My hope and prayer is that we will be people of great faith to approach Jesus first in humility, knowing that although we are not worthy, he is worthy. And he's died for us on the cross. And may we approach Jesus with great faith, trusting that he is who he says he is, that he has ultimate authority, that he is sovereign over our lives in this world, and that no matter the circumstances in our life or in our world, he is working for the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for the example of great faith from a very unexpected person. Lord, we pray that we would, like the centurion, approach you with humility. That we would come to you and kneel before you in repentance, but also in confidence, knowing that, that you accept and receive all who come to you in humility and repentance, acknowledging their need. Lord, may we be people as well who come to you and, and trust in you no matter the circumstances that we would strengthen, be strengthened by, by your word, by your spirit. And Lord, may we be people who encourage each other as we face trials throughout life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us. Help us to grow in our faith. Amen. Would you stand as we respond to the word we've just received?